People are still coming in, but go ahead and make yourself comfortable. It's good to have you here. My name is Luke. If I've not met you yet, would love to meet you after the service. Um, but if you are here and you are not traveling or on vacation or out of town, welcome. It's good to have you. In fact, if you have a Bible or a device, turn to the book of Genesis. And uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves today. While you're turning there, the book of Genesis, not many of you probably look in the mirror and look at the person staring back at you and think to yourself, now there's a leader. There's a leader who has his head on a swivel or who has all of her stuff together. Wow. Very impre- we're not very impressed with ourselves as leaders. I mean, and I think when we consider what a leader is, we could all come up with a list of leaders. In fact, if I were to ask you to come up with your top five leaders in all of world history, I would bet that 80% of us will probably have George Washington on there or Martin Luther King on there. There are the very predictable leaders that we look at and say, that person is a leader. But I don't know that we would ever think that the person staring back at us from the mirror belongs on a list like that, right? It's funny because there's actually a website, I'd never seen it before until a couple weeks ago, called ranker.com, where you could rank and vote up or down on certain things, and it's any list you can think of, like the greatest Yankee to ever put a uniform on, blah, blah, blah. But one of these lists was the greatest leaders in world history. And so I went there, hundreds of thousands of people voted on what, out of 350 leaders, who the, who the greatest were, right? Number one was... Anyone, throw something out there. No, not Jesus. George Washington. George Washington, right? Number 38 was Jesus. So there's apparently 36 people in between George Washington and Jesus. That's what culture says. 303 was Moses, right by Madonna. (laughs) And a bunch of people in suits I'd never even heard of before. Because we all know Madonna's got the mad skills to lead 2 million people through a desert for 40 years, you know. So he got number 303. You see, we all feel like we know what a leader would look like, right? We just don't feel like it's us. We don't feel like that would ever be us. Now listen, this will need to change if you're a Christian, okay? Fair warning. It will need to change if you find yourself in Jesus. You are, in fact, called, mandated, and hear me now, free to be a leader. That sounds like an odd way to say it, but you are free to lead. You see... I've read a billion books on leadership from a billion different people, I feel like, and usually leaders, when they, when they try to define what leadership is, they come up with their own proprietary definition of what it is. I think the best one, if I throw it all in a blender, is a good leader causes the people around them to flourish. We just cause people around us to grow. That's not always what culture calls it, though, right? I don't know that culture always considers a person that causes surrounding neighbors to flourish at their cost a leader. I think they call that person a loser, or they call that person last place, but not necessarily a leader, which is a little bit ironic because the archaic language that makes our word leader, it actually means go forth and die. That's what the word means. And I just think a lot of cultural leaders probably lose the essence of that. But if I could just be honest, I think the church loses the essence of that just as much, right? I think the church maybe fumbles the football here a little bit. And that's because if the church is not adequately and fervently developing leaders 
and influencers in every niche of society, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-boardroom dad, whether it's someone on the playing field or someone who's punching the clock, if the church is not doing a good job of developing leaders for every sphere of society, then, then all we leave people with is just to pick up the stuff that the world puts out there. And quite honestly, most of it's garbage. Quite honestly. I would say much of it is counter-biblical, and I see an increasing amount counter-Jesus. And I say counter-Jesus because in my opinion, my opinion, based on what the Word of God tells me, Jesus Christ is the greatest leader who has ever breathed there the greatest leader, who causes you and me to flourish at his great cost. And I think as a church, if we are not teaching people how to lead as Jesus led, then we're really missing it, missing it big time. Because Jesus is Christianity's icon for leadership. And then he does this. He calls us to go forth likewise. Likewise, like him. Doing what? Causing others to flourish, even at our cost. Even at our cost. See, we happen to live in an age right now where leadership is trending high again. You see this, it happens cyclically. But right now, there's conferences for leadership everywhere. Books on leadership everywhere. It's the cool thing to talk about. It's the cool thing to share a blog about. You can get a degree in organizational leadership. You can get a master. There are PhD programs on organizational leadership. Yet with all of the content that has been created and can be consumed, we're not very good at it, and it's for one reason. You ready for this? It's the cost of leadership, because leadership is costly, and then it costs some more. And then when you're done paying the cost of leadership and influencing others and causing others to flourish, when you're done paying the cost, there's more cost to follow that. And just when you think you're done paying the price tag for being an influencer, there's more cost, and then more cost, and then more cost. Leadership. It's dying a little bit. That's what it means to lead. It means to die. And influencing others so that they flourish is impossible to do without the self increasing or decreasing. There's a, there's a proportionality between others increasing and our decreasing. I think we struggle with that, but it's what we're called to do. We see this brilliant passage at the very end of the book of Matthew 28, we see Jesus tell the disciples to do what? Go and make more disciples who will make more disciples, who will make more disciples, who will make more disciples. And these disciples will do what? They will teach other disciples to do all that Jesus said and taught, and they will baptize them, and then they will make more disciples, and they will make more disciples. Jesus is telling us to be influencers who will influence others in such a way that they will be influential. That we will cause others to flourish around us in such a way that they cause those around them to flourish as well. And Jesus doesn't just tell us and give us the mandate for it. He shows us what the price tag is for it, the cost. He shows us it takes his life, right? So you cannot keep self and build others simultaneously. That's really the big idea today. You cannot keep self and build others at the same time. That equation will never balance. It's not one that will ever work. The men and women who have influenced me the greatest in my life did so at a great cost to themselves, right? They did. I mean, and, and I, I remember some of the things they said. I remember everything that they did, right? They died a little bit in raising me up and influencing me and molding me. 
But this is difficult because becoming small so that others can expand is contrary to our genetic code. And it is definitely contrary to what culture says. So there's a little bit of nature and a little bit of nurture that kind of pushes us and shoves us into this place where we are going to flourish at the cost of others instead of vice versa. The survival of the fittest. That's what we know. So I know this to be the case so much so that in just talking about it now with you here today, some of you are already getting uneasy inside because you're looking at how you lead, influence, make disciples, and you're considering yourself a drastic failure at it. So this might be a struggle for you, right? Just the topic of leadership might be difficult. So I hope to help you today. Listen, for the next three months, we're going to look at the dramatic moments in the life of Abraham. Not every, not every verse, but every crucial moment, right? And it'll take us through the summer. I'm excited to do this. And the reason we picked this is me and Chris and the pastor sat down and looked at the scan of the Bible. The reason we really focused on the life of Abraham is not because we haven't done Old Testament in 49 weeks. It's because we think he could be helpful for you in some really key areas. We think that Abraham shows us the trials of leadership. By the way, he's number 225 on that list. I'm not so sure he doesn't belong there, though. Does that sound weird or unbiblical to say that? That maybe he wasn't the greatest leader? He hit as many foul balls as he did home runs, when you look at it. I think that's why Abraham is so accessible to our imagination, right? Because we see he has these brilliant moments these cataclysmic moments, but then he has these pathetic moments too, right? He trusts, but then he fails. He worships, and then he acts selfishly. He offers his son up as a sacrifice. How incredible is that? But then he offers his wife up out of fear. He gets the Razzie Award in the whole Bible for being the worst husband. I cannot find in this text given to us a worse example of a husband's action than what Abraham did with his wife, not once, but twice. Looking forward to talking about that, right? So he's accessible to our imagination. He shows us not great leadership, but real leadership, leadership that ebbs and flows. I think he also shows us how grace works, which is very important for us because grace is a concept that is easily defined. It is not a concept that is easily applied. It'll take a lifetime to do that, right? But Abraham was a mess, and he had the same fears you did, the same anxieties you did, the same lusts of this world and the flesh that you do. He is you. Abraham is you, and you are Abraham. Don't be duped into the historical cleansing that happens when we are little kids sometimes with our Abraham coloring book and the flannel graph where everyone is smiling. Listen, he did some stupid things. He did some very stupid things, and yet God used him for his will and his design. God uses this train wreck of a guy to purpose a nation that will bring about the Messiah, that will bring about this thing that we're calling church today, which is pretty amazing. What it does is just reinforces what we always say, that if God cannot work with your mistakes in your failed life, you wouldn't have much left to work with. So he shows us leadership, he shows us how grace works, but what I'm most excited about is he shows us Jesus more clearly. I mean, he shows us Jesus more clearly, and that is our ultimate goal. My hope for the next several weeks is that you just fall in love with Jesus more. That's always my hope, though, that you find a freedom in losing yourself and you bless others as you have been blessed. That's what, that's what we want. 
Because again, you are not just called to lead, you are free to lead, and Jesus brings freedom, not just a mandate. He doesn't just bring a mandate and drop it on you and say, there, eat it. He brings you the freedom to enjoy it, to long for it, as we're going to hear Paul say here in just a minute. So we're going to find Abraham's story beginning in chapter 12. That's where his story kind of folds in. And when we catch up with Abraham, it might surprise you where we find him, because we don't find Abram, which is what he's called back then, we don't find Abram worshiping the God of the Bible. In fact, we find him worshiping the moon with all the dorky things to worship. The moon, most likely. I mean, we worship money today, we worship work, we worship sports, but... I mean, if any of your friends worshipped the moon, you would think that was kind of dorky. See, back then, in this part of the world, lunar worship was all the rage. It was this cult that was trending really high. And we know historically by the names of Abraham's relatives, the sound and the spelling of those names, that they were likely participants, very likely participants, in this moon or lunar worship. And just as a side note, we also find Abraham married to his sister, his half-sister. Sister from another mother, right? Now, that was called endogamy back then. It was not against the laws of God at the time, but it wasn't super normal. It was semi-normal, right? And then he's got Lot, who's always poking his head around. And Lot ends up being this cousin, but, but a little bit of a son type as well, because Lot's dad died. And so Abraham kind of takes the responsibility of being the covering for Lot. But Lot ends up being a liability, as we're going to see later on. You see, what I want you to see is that Abraham did not look like a Christian before God called him at all, not even a little bit. God moved towards Abraham and called him when he looked like a very poor candidate. When God found Abraham, he was getting dressed and getting ready to lead a calm group for pagans who were just going to bark at the moon. That's where God found him. We have no evidence at all in the Bible that God chose Abram because he merited favor. We have no evidence at all in the Bible that God chose Abraham because Abraham chose God. It's not in there. You can look for it, you won't find it. God just decided in his brilliance, I'm starting a family, and that guy right there is gonna be ground zero. Doesn't deserve it, he's just getting it, because that's what I want. God will bring Abraham a great blessing as a gift, not an achievement. Now does this sound familiar? It does. Ephesians 2. Look up on the screen. You can stay where you're at in Genesis. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not, this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, if anything, I hope this helps you as a missionary engaging the city, right? Because not only are you called and free to be a leader and called and free to be a disciple maker, you are called and free to be a missionary. We do believe that. And it helps me. It reminds me because whenever I go through Knoxville and there's people that are acting like turds all the time and doing dumb things all the time, sometimes I can forget that Abraham barked at the moon and married his sister. I can forget that. I can forget how unlikely he is. But God will cruise into and interrupt the lives of the most unimaginable people, doing the most unimaginable things. Sometimes we want our non-Christians to look like Christians, and it makes us uncomfortable when we are around people that look like God could never touch them with a 10-foot pole. 
I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor or a church planter or both that I hear this saying a lot, but I've heard this saying for 20 years. This is tough soil. Luke, you don't get it. This is tough soil. This, this turf is just too tough. It's usually said by pastors or church planners that I come into contact with that don't see the results that they want to see on Sunday morning. They just toss it up and say, well, this city just must be a graveyard for churches. This is just hard turf. Even as a young Christian, I always thought, hard for who exactly? Hard for you? I get it. We could talk about that, but hard for God? Genesis 12, my man. Because we find God interrupting Ur and Haran when there were no missionaries, no Bible, no Jesus walking around, no campus ministry, no comm groups, no nothing. God just interrupts. I like that because it helps me remember when I pray that my neighbors are not too far gone. Hey, your family members, you know which ones I'm talking about? They are not too far gone. Talk about hard turf, right? Forget cities. (laughs) Just uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters, that's hard turf. It's not too far gone. I mean, barking at the moon, that's a PG moment compared to some of the things that we've had to do life with. So whenever you pray for your family, whenever you pray for your jerk-faced neighbor, pray with passages like this in mind, right? Where we have an interrupting grace from a very unintimidated God. That's what we see i got to actually read the text here. So let's look at Genesis 12, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It's going to be very helpful in showing us Jesus today. This is what it says for us. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. There are entire seminary classes just on those three verses, by the way. But if you could boil it all down, God is promising to make a place for Abraham. A place where a family can come and turn into a nation where God's power and glory will be manifested, not just in a way that that nation gets to experience it, but in a way that that nation gets to express it to all the families and nations of the earth. There's a big problem in this though. Maybe you saw it, maybe you know the story well. They had no kids. How do you build a nation with no family? How do you build a family with an infertility problem? Because that's, what, that's really what we have, right? Now listen, Mother's Day was last week. I know, because I've done this long enough, if you stick 100 moms in a room, Mother's Day is only fun for about half of them. It could be a tough spot for the other half. Missed adoption opportunities, treacherous fostering waters, abortions, miscarriages, moms who have passed away, moms who just feel like failures. And I'm just telling you, husband, as a husband, if you've got kids and your, mom, and your wife is doing the best she can to be a mom, she needs encouragement because I rarely run into a mom that does not feel like she's doing a horrible job. They all feel like that. 
So I really look forward to speaking to this whenever the passage comes around. I don't want to hit it now. I do want to, but we, we can't talk too much about this now. I just want to say that God shows great compassion for the infertile. God has great compassion for the barren, and God has incredibly deep passion for moms who feel like failures. And the story of Abraham and Sarah is really going to show. It's going to put it on full display. I'm looking forward to that. But the important note I want you to see in these first three verses is that God blessing Abraham was not meant just for Abraham, but it was meant to pass through him. Yes, he will receive blessing, but he is meant to transmit blessing. That's what this is about. Hey, does that sound familiar too, by the way? That little part? We see this in 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul says to us. He says, God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So God is telling Abraham in our text today, you will be blessed and it will be to bless others. We also see God speaking to you and me through Paul saying, hey, you will be blessed to bless others. It's so cool. I love it. Whenever you see in the Old Testament, you see God's storytelling of Abraham start to touch a little bit of your story today through the story of Jesus. It's a lot of fun to see that, right? But there's another problem. Another problem, though. Not only do they not have any kids due to barrenness, they're being called to leave everything that they have ever known, jeopardizing all, all, A-L-L, all of their security and all of their comfort. That's what they are being called to leave. Now, we know this from this passages and other supporting passages that they had lived in this area, the Ur and Haran area. It's more of a metropolis. It's more of a city duplet than anything. They'd lived there for about 75 years, and they had accumulated quite a fortune. These are things we know, right? Not a small hometown. It was a very, very big, bustling city. Ur and Haran would be a little bit more like a Philadelphia or a San Francisco or a Manhattan or a Miami. We're talking about a port of entry where new ideas carry through, export, import, new religions, the newest styles, the newest songs. They were culture centers. This was the biggest culture center of the known world at the time, and we're talking about a big name. This guy's name had power, and he had wealth. He was a mover and shaker in a town that was moving and shaking, and he's being asked to leave. Right? So this is what the Bible says. Let's jump back into verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem to the oak of Moreh at the time that the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there was and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Okay, all right. I want you to, out of all of that, which is a lot, one sentence that's easily missed. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Did you catch that? It's dangerous territory, at least for a hipster. 
at least from a hipster from the big city, dangerous territory. Think about it. When you transit everything you've ever owned, and you, once it leaves your house and goes in a box and you throw it on the moving truck, it feels vulnerable, right? Whether it's going across the city or going across the country, it seems vulnerable. If you've ever moved before, isn't it interesting how some stuff just never shows up? <laughs> like a couch gone? I'm still, we moved a couple months ago, I'm still missing two boxes of books. I'm searching high and low. Like my favorite books were in there. I can't find them anywhere. Imagine this guy, very wealthy, probably had a lot of his stuff locked up in what they called a bank back then, probably had guards around his house, and now he's packing it all up and he's trekking as a pilgrim into a dangerous land where there are gypsies and enemies and all kinds of bandits that want to steal from him and take from him, and they don't care what his last name is. He doesn't even know where all the streets go. New territory, just passing through. That's what's happening right now. And as soon as Abraham gets in the middle of this danger zone, God stops him and says, hey, hey, look around. Huh? Huh? What do you think? This is the land. This is the land I'm giving you. Check it out as far as you can see. Right? So what does Abraham do? He builds an altar. That's the equivalent of throwing a flag in the ground and saying, this, this land God claims. This is God's now. I don't care whose it was in the past, it's God's now. You see, these altars were permanent. They were stone, permanent as stone is. The tents will go down, they'll, they'll go up, he'll be trekking around, but those altars stay there. In fact, this particular altar will show up in the Old Testament about six or seven more times through the story of Israel, which is pretty interesting, right? So, very cool text. And what I want you to see, what the text is teaching us is that God is making a space and a name and a family and a nation that all is this beautiful thing that builds and builds and builds, but it climaxes in the person of Jesus. And then that family starts again. And then it leads to disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples and influence others and cause others to flourish until it gets to you today. And then you carry the same gospel, the same grace-filled message, and other disciples are made, and they are flourished, and there's more influence, and more city centers reached, and it goes on and on and on and on until when? Until the ends of the earth. That is the mission statement, until the ends of the earth. I mean, Jesus comes along 42 generations after this text. 42, that's a lot. But yet when Jesus comes around, he's asking us to do something very, very similar because are we not pilgrims in a land we don't belong in, filled with Canaanites? Is that not who we are? Blessed so that we can bless others, leading others to flourish around us as we influence and make disciples? You see, this cool passage today, if you didn't see it on its surface value, you could see a thread behind the tapestry of what God is doing, and that thread goes all the way through to the Great Commission, coming all the way through to you today. It's probably one of the reasons I like it so much, but we have another big problem. Another big problem in this text, and that's even though we have more evidence to trust from than Abraham did. I mean, he had no bloody cross or no empty tomb. Didn't have this either, right? didn't have any of this. We, we have a lot. We have glory on display. And even though we have more, we distrust. And the pain 
of influencing and making disciples and causing others to flourish, it hurts. That's the problem. Leadership costs too much. It's too painful. This is usually how it works out in people. We will hear the call of God to disciple and make disciples. We will hear the call of God to influence and cause others to flourish. And our heart will respond. And we'll think, yes, I want to be a part of that. But then we kind of see out of the corner of our eye, in our other hand, is the price tag for doing something like that. The emotional price. The time. Just the, the, the everything that comes with it. And we just hold them in either hand. And, and what we end up doing is we end up just being stuck, static. And we start bartering and compromising. Or we wait for the risk to drop before we start investing in others. We want it to not hurt as much. We want the promise to cost us less. We want the Canaanites to leave the land before we make disciples. We want to lead without decreasing ourselves. We want to be a blessing without it costing us too much. We want to be totally safe and totally secure, but totally courageous at the same time. We want to make disciples with no exertion at all. We want to influence others without breaking a sweat. We want to cause others to flourish without having our own heart broke. And leadership actually will jeopardize and cost you all of those things. It's the price. It's going to cost you everything that you call comfort and security. You see, disciple-making is the most dangerous thing you could ever do with your emotions and your calendar. I mean, I'm just going to give it to you straight. It is the most dangerous thing you can do. It will chisel into your reserves. I might say it will bankrupt you. And sometimes, the people that you pour your life into, sometimes they'll bite you and they'll leave. And then you have the, just the emotional drain of that. It's hard. It's hard. You know, for the, last, for the last 10 days or so, I've been able to meet and sit down with not all of them, but, but, but a chunk of our missional community leaders and, and a couple hosts and some guys and girls that want to come up and learn how to lead a living room. And I'm, and I'm watching them talk. And it's been so much fun because on, on one side, they're excited about what God is doing. They love the families in their living room and they're encouraged. But then on the other side, they're like, but look, yo, I got some questions. <laughs> what do we do about this? What do we do about these people? What do we do about? And what, they're, what they start stating is, what do I do with all the pain? There's things that make this not easy. I love it. I'm bought in. But my goodness, this is hard. And I start to get this smile on my face. Because that's where leaders are made. That's where leaders are made. I don't want to hear that it's all going great. I know it's not all going great. But that pain and what it means to make a disciple. And I'm watching them just kind of give me the good news and then give me where it hurts. And it, it makes me so excited. I got in the truck after this last one, and I started crying because I was so excited and encouraged about what God is doing in some of you, not in this room, but in the living room of all places. Listen, my biggest heroes, they're not going to be found on an internet list. They're going to be found in Knoxville living rooms. That's where my heroes are going to be found. If you're hosting one, by the way, or you're leading one, or you're learning to lead or facilitate one, thank you. And when I say thank you, I mean I understand how short that is and really delivering what my heart feels for you right now. My gosh, you're building a church. You're going to reach a city. Whew. And you know, the thing is about, 
the community groups. One of the most difficult things that a missional community can do is develop a ministry or an environment that is postured towards the city. It's, it's not that hard to get a bunch of people in a living room, throw some brownies in, a well-studied Bible study, and everybody leaves high-fiving each other. It's really not that difficult to do. I know because America's doing it largely, right? It's not that hard. I'll tell you what's hard. is getting everyone to like each other, be honest with each other, enjoy each other, study well, do communion together well, but then for a leader or a co-leader to drive them all towards the neighborhood or to a part of the city that is desperately lost, that is so hard. We have classes on it, it's so difficult. But let me tell you where it gets even harder, when you start catching people. Oh, forget about it. Your phone's gonna ring off the hook. You're gonna be teaching the same stuff over and over again. You'll get your heart broke, people will disappear, they'll never come back. Your emotions will be drained, tested, People's mess that's heavy for them will all of a sudden be heavy for you because you love and care for them. Listen, it's hard. And you will be tempted, like I am, you will be tempted to look at the call of influencing and causing others to flourish, and you will look at the price tag, and it'll be a hard decision. And it might be based on how much hurt is coming your way, right? Robert Quinn, who wrote a book on leadership, he says this, it'll be up on the screen. Most people want to be told how to get extraordinary results with a minimum risk. They wanna know how to get out of the box results within the box courage. <laughs> I love that. You know, when we tell ourselves that we will trust God and make disciples and influence those around us, whenever work gets easier, we're straight up lying to ourselves and we're waiting for the pain to go away. We're bartering. Whenever we say, whenever class is done or whenever the kids grow up, or whenever this season is, is going to taper down, then I will be about the business of leading. What you're saying is, is I will do it when it doesn't hurt. I will do it when it is convenient. But the picture of Abraham here is what happens when trust meets inconvenience and discomfort. That's what we're seeing. He shows us. Many of us in this room are not making disciples or causing those around us to flourish for the single reason that it just hurts too much. It hurts to shrink. Being courageous, it's draining. It's draining. That's why I'm here to say you are called to do this very thing, but you are also free to do it. Free to lead. You're not enslaved anymore. You're not enslaved to watch your own back, to keep an eye on your six to make sure other people aren't taking too much from you. You're not enslaved to look out for number one. You're not enslaved to self-preservation or you're not enslaved to any of that. Looking out for yourself. See, my favorite part about this passage is that Abraham's trust in God is not meant for you to just fixate on what Abraham's doing. Abraham himself is taking your chin and drawing and diverting your gaze to Jesus. Jesus, who is a greater pilgrim, catch it, a greater pilgrim from a more comfortable and secure place into a land with a lot of bandits and enemies, worse than the Canaanites. And he came to do what? To cause us to flourish at his cost. And what does he do? He throws a flag down in the ground and says, this belongs to God. He doesn't build a puny altar. He hoists himself up on a cross and he bleeds out and his body is broken. He is the uber Abraham. That's what this is supposed to show us. That's why this is in the Bible. That's, that's the only reason this would even be in the Bible. 
Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. And we were the worst, worst than bandits. We were worse than Canaanites. And our new king, he gives us freedom to make disciples and cause others to flourish. But Luke, isn't there going to be pain? Oh, yeah. And he's inviting you into it. Does it seem like a weird invitation to get in the mail? He's inviting you into this pain. That's why Paul said in that 2 Corinthians verse that we had, for as we share abundantly in Jesus' sufferings, so through Jesus we share abundantly in comfort too. I also like what he says in Philippians, and we'll put this up on the screen as well in the third chapter. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now hear what he says, how he signs off. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. As he's being invited into it, and he understands this. This means that Paul laid a ton of things down and became incredibly uncomfortable, and he found Jesus in his sufferings. Jesus, waiting, identifying with him, and being identified in the midst of those sufferings. And what comes afterward? More God, more life. Paul was fine with that. You see, the Christian disciple maker who is leading others will find suffering. I hope I've made that abundantly clear. But Jesus is, in fact, inviting you into this. Right? And you will also be invited into the peace that follows. And this is the peace that Paul longed for. That's why we hear him talk like he talks. That's why you see him doing the things that he's doing. You know, listen, cease and desist. I mean, just stop. Stop all attempts to hedge your bets and influence or make disciples without spending yourself or jeopardizing yourself. Just stop. It's goofy. It's not going to work, ever. If you're waiting for the danger to leave and for the risk to subside before you cause others around you to flourish or before you make disciples, you will never be a leader. You will never make a disciple. If you're waiting for the risk to go away, you will never make a disciple, friends. You'll never leave. No one will flourish around you without it costing you greatly. Only those who trust Jesus to be their comfort and security can do this. It's only for them. It's only for those who trust that the gospel is their good news. It's only for those. The Great Commission is just not for the faint of heart. It's for the gospel enthralled, but make no mistake, it will cost you your life. It's not for the faint of heart. Right? Okay, go ahead and stand with me. I need to get out of this sermon. I think as we drive towards worship and we drive towards communion, I hope you see that a place has been made for us. God has made a place for his people. It's not this little stitch of soil. It's a different place. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and then we learned in John, he, in fact, will be our place. Jesus is our place, we found out. And what we have today, besides just music that we could read the lyrics and sing along to, we also have tables in the back with bread, with juice, symbolize a broken body and spilt blood. And we look at communion and we see that Jesus was the better pilgrim on a better altar among worse Canaanites to make a more beautiful nation. 
So as you take those elements in remembrance of Jesus, beg the Holy Spirit. Beg the Holy Spirit that he would give you the courage to lose yourself. Give you the courage to enter into the suffering that is required for a disciple maker where you will in fact find him waiting for you. Beg the Holy Spirit for the courage to do this. Think about the person that led you to Jesus. The person maybe that has influenced you or caused you to flourish because someone caused them to flourish. Someone influenced them. And that disciple was made by another disciple who was made by another disciple all the way back to Jesus' lips. And you will leave this place and you will have the opportunity and yet the freedom to make disciples and influence others in a way that they flourish even at your cost. Right? And then some of you, you find yourself here and you find yourself far from God, but maybe God is stirring your heart right now. Maybe you feel a stirring, right? I do want to repeat one sentence that God tells Abraham. He says this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. This was true for Abraham and the nation of Israel. It is ultimately true in the person of Jesus. If you walked in here far from Jesus, you walked in with a curse on your head. That's what the passage is leading us to see. You walked in with a curse on your head, right? It's extended through all the Bible and lands on Jesus. If Jesus is anything besides your total Lord in Christ, that is where you find yourself. My appeal is that you find in Jesus the freedom to lose yourself, to become a disciple, to become a disciple. And if, in fact, God is doing this in your heart right now, if, in fact, God is doing this in your heart, I want you to come and see me. Come and see me after the service and let me know. And God is, in fact, doing something, even if you don't know the right words to say, even if you're not quite sure how to say it, just come up and talk to me. I'd love to work with you. I'd love to pray with you. Amen? All right, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. Thank you for such a cool passage. I thank you for what you've done, not just in Abraham's life. I thank you for what you've done in the seed of Abraham in coming amongst us. I find myself worse than a bandit, not just wanting to take your stuff, but wanting to destroy you, and that's how you found me worshiping all kinds of things, finding us. You found us, Father, those of, those of us who are your children. You found us very far from you, not doing anything that even looked remotely beautiful. But you were not intimidated, and you interrupt our life with your grace. And you have made disciples, who have made disciples, who have made disciples. Father, my biggest cry is that this church would be a church that would cause the city of Knoxville to flourish. But not because of preaching or a cool environment, but because of the people of Legacy Church, the, the actual church, the people. That we would have disciple-making is a tattoo on our soul, that we would be leaders who would cause others to flourish, that we would be influencers of society, living rooms. Lord, that's my heart cry. And Lord, that today you would be working in hearts, that you would be changing us, from the inside out, that our affections for you would be awakened and we would find a depth in our worship to you because you are worthy. You are worthy. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.